Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Nature Podcast. This week, we're finding out about a project that's boosting diversity in physics. Plus, life's recovery from a massive asteroid impact confounds expectations. This is The Nature Podcast for the 31st of May, 2018. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Shamini Bundell. With the recent royal wedding here in the UK, there's been a lot of discussion about whether our society truly is a meritocracy. In science, at least, things are more clear-cut than in the monarchy. Professorships aren't handed down from generation to generation along with a crown and the right to own all the swans. In science, success is supposed to depend on an individual's personal merit. That's the idea, anyway. In practice, academic ability is far from the only factor affecting a scientist's career. Ted Hodap of the American Physical Society is concerned about the fact that in his field, physics, there's a clear imbalance in the kinds of students reaching both undergraduate and graduate level. About 35% of the US population can be classified as underrepresented minorities in the definition that we use, which is African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Native Americans. And 35% drops to about uh, 11 or 12% getting bachelor's degrees uh, for physics. And then when you go on to the PhD, it drops even further down to about uh, 6 or 7%. In the US, affirmative action policies try to counter some of the effects of racism or other forms of discrimination in admissions. But direct discrimination isn't the only reason for the lack of minority students in physics. Structural inequality in society has a range of knock-on effects. There are a lot of different reasons why students don't advance between the bachelor's degree and the PhD. Although many of them are ready to go on to a PhD, uh, many of them are not ready because they don't think they're ready. Or they're given the wrong advice about how to uh, prepare for and take a particular exam that is used in the United States called the graduate record exam. And many physics departments use this very strongly to rank stu- rank students. The use of tests such as the graduate record exam, known as the GRE, and the use of the undergraduate grade point average, known as a GPA, is supposed to ensure that admissions officers can select the most capable students. 
but there are many factors that can influence these kind of test results, many of which are nothing to do with academic ability. Zach Hall, a physics graduate at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, was very keen to pursue physics after undergrad, but found that he wasn't in the best position to do so. My biggest issue was my undergraduate GPA was very low, and that wasn't a great indicator of my ability or my, I guess, drive to continue in physics. For me personally, undergrad was really, really challenging in more ways than just academic, both personally, financially. I think it's very easy for certain types of students to be completely dismissed when considering only uh, these kind of standardized factors. Zach was able to gain his current PhD place thanks to support from the American Physical Society Bridge Program, of which Ted Hodap is director. The programme aims to get more students from underrepresented minorities into graduate programmes. One of the many ways it's doing this is by encouraging university admissions to focus less on the results of standardised tests. One of the ways you can do that is by not looking at the GRE score to begin with. You look at all the other pieces. If you look at a low score on something before you rank a a student in in an application process, you automatically think... um, more poorly of such a student. This is something called anchoring bias. When talking to graduate admissions departments, the APS Bridge Programme encourages a more holistic approach, looking at the trajectory and potential of students. So a fixed mindset says, um, let's just pick the individuals who are the stars of the pool here. And the growth mindset says, "Let's let's pick people who we think can do amazingly well if we give them the right opportunities. And there's a, there's a big difference there because if, if you didn't have the right opportunities to begin with to be able to show that your potential, you're just not going to be selected. But there's more that can be done beyond just changing selection criteria. Here's Brian Samaripa Roman, another student on the APS program. When I realized that I had to pay for grad, for grad school applications, I was like, oh, I, I don't know if I can do all that, you know, because like my mom didn't work and my, my dad, actually my dad had passed away. Um, my junior year in high school and so growing up I had to I had to pretty much take care of my family as well and so there was a lot of things that I had to worry about a lot of things that I didn't know I knew that the the end goal was a PhD but I had no idea what steps to take the bridge program helped Brian take the graduate record exam and put in a graduate school application despite having missed the normal deadline he's now studying at the University of Central Florida where the bridge program continues to support him through mentorship schemes Ted Hodap says that ongoing mentoring schemes are important and he believes they may be responsible for the high retention rate of PhD students on the programme. Oftentimes I think physics programmes, there's a a sense that um, once a student comes in, uh, the faculty don't need to pay attention to the student. They say if they're good enough, they're going to continue and they're going to complete their degree. And it kind of ignores the fact that certain students are coming in not knowing how the system works. Students of the APS Bridge Programme believe that it and programmes like it can have a wider benefit than just to the individuals involved. Michelle Lolly has been supported by the APS at Indiana University Bloomington. It's important because, you know, we have to change the face of physics. Uh, there's a stereotype of, you know, an older Caucasian male uh, being your standard physicist. So it's important for, you know, a little brown or black girl or, or a young man they have to see, you know, people who look like them, 
the uh, advice I would give it. If you really want to do it, do it because you love it and know that you can do it. And you may experience some challenges along the way, but you are changing the face of physics in history at this time. And that's what we need to have. Thanks to students Michelle Lolly, Zach Hall and Brian Samaripa Roman for talking to us about their experiences. Ted Hodap is Director of Project Development for the American Physical Society and, along with colleague Erica Brown, has written a comment piece in this week's issue of Nature about the APS Bridge Programme. Find that at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash news. Still to come in this week's show, how life crept back after that asteroid impact that wiped out the dinosaurs. <clears throat> Oh, sorry, the non-avian dinosaurs. Thank you. Uh, Now, though, Ellie Mackay joins us in the studio for this week's research highlights. Lizards and snakes, collectively known as squamates, are the largest group of reptiles. But a gap in the early fossil record means their evolutionary origin is a slippery subject. Now, scientists have estimated the age of an ancient squamate fossil found in the Italian Alps. New high-resolution X-ray imagery revealed it's around 75 million years older than the earliest previously known of these scaly specimens. This helped the team put together the most detailed family tree of squamates yet. Together, this work fleshes out the fossil record and teaches us more about the early evolution of our slithery friends. Find that study in this week's Nature. From historical snakes to old artwork and a high-tech solution to the sticky issue of ageing adhesives. Since the 1930s, sticky tape has been used to hold artwork in place, in framing or storage. Even the 2,000-year-old Dead Sea Scrolls have been taped together in places. But over many decades, the glue breaks down and can damage the artwork when it's removed. Now, scientists have developed a gel containing nano-sized droplets of solvent, These can penetrate through the pores in the tape to dissolve the adhesive without affecting the precious works attached. Get stuck into that paper at the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. How does an ecosystem recover after a disaster? Reporter Benjamin Thompson has been finding out how quickly life recovered after a cataclysmic event 66 million years ago. Listeners, today's story begins at the end of Earth's Cretaceous period, when dinosaurs were roaming around and the oceans and seas were teeming with life. Something was about to happen that would change everything. So about 66 million years ago, an asteroid the size roughly of Manhattan Island, I think it was about 10 kilometers across, uh, crashed into what is now the Yucatan Peninsula in the Gulf of Mexico and uh, caused the most recent mass extinction in Earth history. It's responsible for wiping out the non-avian dinosaurs, as well as a lot of cool marine animals, and overall 75% of life on Earth went extinct. This is Chris Lowry from the University of Texas Institute for Geophysics. He's been looking at the enormous impact site of this asteroid, known as the Chicxulub Crater. And my goodness, this asteroid left a big crater. It was going something like, I don't know, like 20 times faster than a rifle bullet. It's moving insanely fast. And so, you know, you see all these pictures of, like, the dinosaurs looking up in terror as an asteroid streaks across the sky. That's not what it looked like. Uh, it probably would have just been, like, a white flash, and that's it. Uh, but the asteroid hit. Uh, it caused um, big seismic disruptions across the Gulf of Mexico. You get slope collapse all around the Gulf of Mexico basin. Formed a huge tsunami that washed all the way up, and I think as far up almost to Iowa you find um, tsunami deposits from the impact. In a Nature paper this week, Chris and his colleagues have been looking at the recovery of marine life in the spot where the asteroid struck. 
One way of measuring the recovery in an ocean ecosystem is to look for evidence of primary productivity. Now, primary producers are things at the bottom of the food chain, like phytoplankton, and by looking for evidence of their presence, you can get an idea of the state that an ecosystem was in at a particular time. In the asteroids' aftermath, the primary productivity levels in the oceans and seas differed around the world compared to what they were before the impact. Across the world ocean, there's a big difference in the, in the level of productivity after the Cretaceous. In some places, it actually goes up a little bit, particularly in the Pacific. But in a lot of places, it drops. And it takes hundreds of thousands of years to get back to Cretaceous levels of productivity. And you see that particularly in the North Atlantic and in the Gulf of Mexico. There is a big drop in productivity that we can see from a lot of different proxies, um, different uh, biological and chemical aspects of the rocks that we look at that tell us productivity was low for a long time. To get an idea of whether the distance from the impact influenced how quickly an ecosystem recovered, Chris and his colleagues went to the source, the crater itself. Now, the Chicxulub crater is known as a peak ring crater, and it is essentially what its name suggests, a crater with a ring of peaks or hills inside it. Back in 2016, Chris took part in an offshore expedition that drilled some rock core samples from the ring. These cores gave the team a window into the past. So we can see all the way back to the instant that the asteroid hit. So we drilled down, uh, we've drilled through 600 meters of post-impact sediments, and we took cores through the lower 200 meters, and we recovered about the first 30 million years after the impact in those cores. And then we got down to the impact rocks themselves, and that, uh, so 66 million years ago, and we were looking at um, about 120 meters of impact melt in Breccia, that was a big jumble of rocks that fell back into the crater right after it formed. And then below that, we found uh, about 700 meters of uh, pink granite that formed up the peak ring. Uh, all of those rocks, all those impact rocks, were formed the day the impact hit. And actually, the whole cratering process takes about 10 minutes. And so within 10 minutes, the peak ring was formed, the melt rock was in place, and most of the breccia was in place as well. Shortly after the impact, a layer of fine ocean sediment settled over the rocks in the crater. By looking for fossils within this layer, Chris and his colleagues could estimate how long it took for life to return to the site. It turned out it didn't take long at all. What we found was there was life in the crater, living in the crater, new life within years of the impact, which is surprisingly fast for this life to appear. We found microfossils of planktic foraminifera, these sand-sized zooplankton. We found fossils of calcareous nanoplankton, which are primary producers, they're little, little algae that form these hard shells. We also found burrows in this settling layer. So we know that there were critters, little worms and stuff living on the seafloor within years. Chris suggests that life could have returned to the crater within just two or three years. The team also found evidence that within 30,000 years of the impact, the area had returned to being a high-productivity ecosystem. Now, this is much quicker than the recovery seen in other parts of the Gulf of Mexico and in the North Atlantic, and doesn't fit with the hypothesis that ecosystems recovered quicker the further they were from the impact. I would have guessed going in that we would have found um, slower recovery in the crater, or at least the same recovery as elsewhere in the crater. Maybe that wouldn't have proved the hypothesis. Maybe that would have left some room open for some interpretation, but I definitely would not have been expected that recovery would have been so fast. And I definitely wouldn't have expected that life would have appeared within years in the crater. And so both of those things were surprising in a really exciting, good way. It's not yet clear quite how the ecosystem in the area recovered so quickly after it was smashed into by an asteroid that wiped out much of the life on Earth. Chris, though, is hopeful that by learning more about what happened 66 million years ago, we could understand what might happen to ecosystems in the future. What's really exciting about the Chicxulub, the in-Cretaceous in mass extinction, is it's really fast. Other mass extinctions in Earth history were caused by really much slower processes like massive volcanism. These are things that take tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, you know, Chicxulub was a very bad day. And within a couple years, 
everything that was going to go extinct went extinct and everything else started to come back and start to reoccupy the oceans and start to diversify after that. And so it actually makes it a very interesting partial analog for modern biodiversity loss due to climate change and land use change and pollution in the oceans and everything else. Um, Chicxulub is probably the only event in Earth history that's faster than what we're currently doing to the oceans and, and the rest of the planet. And so if we can understand ecosystem dynamics and recovery after that rapid event, it, it'll help us predict ecosystem recovery in the future once these man-made um, environmental changes kind of subside. That was Chris Lowry from the University of Texas Institute for Geophysics talking with Benjamin Thompson. You can read Chris's paper over at nature.com forward slash nature. Finally this week, it's time for the news chat and acting European Bureau Chief Ewan Calloway joins us in the studio. Hi, Ewan. Howdy. First up, we have a story about antibody patents. Now, before we get into what's changed for these patents, can you just give us a little refresher on what an antibody actually is? Yeah, this is a story from my colleague Heidi Ledford. And antibodies are they're proteins that our immune system unleashes uh, against uh, infections and other like foreign invaders. And they're really special because they have this ability to recognize exquisitely specific parts of these foreign invaders, so a specific protein produced by a virus or, or by more likely by a uh, virus-infected cell or by a, a bacterium. So yeah, there are these amazing biological molecules that can recognize uh, most any other biological substance with amazing specificity. And that makes them incredibly useful for medical applications. Exactly, exactly. And so people realize that this uh, amazing specificity of antibodies could be used to make drugs because if you can design an antibody or if you can get an antibody to recognize a molecule that you don't want uh, circulating in somebody's blood to block its activity, you could offer that to somebody as a as a therapy. And it's worked. You know, the first antibody drug, I think, was a, was approved in the 1980s. They now account for about $100 billion in drug sales. I mean, these are, these are blockbuster drugs. But what hasn't been working so well is the way in which these, uh, these blockbuster drugs are patented. Why has it been difficult to patent antibodies? Yeah, so antibodies are, these are biological molecules. These are proteins. And so they're, they're quite different from traditional drugs, which we call small molecules. And you know, you know the exact chemical structure of that small molecule. With antibodies, the protein sequence that's encoded by DNA and the problem is is that to offer patent protection for an antibody, you needed to have quite broad coverage because you could slightly tweak the specific sequence of an antibody. It would do the exact same thing. So that's no good. You know, if, you're, if you spend all this money making an antibody drug and somebody just changes one letter in your antibody and, you know, puts you out of business, that's not good. So the way antibodies were protected was to say, this antibody or this set of antibodies that I produced in my lab recognizes this biological protein or this biological target. So I'm going to give you this portfolio of antibodies that recognize this, which worked for the time being because we, we didn't actually have a very good way of figuring out exactly where antibodies were binding. You know, I told you that they they have this great specificity to bind, you know, any any other protein or biological target, but they actually bind specific parts of proteins. And it's a lot of work to figure out which part that is. And only recently has a technology to 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 figure out where antibodies are working. 
how they're binding, has that become widely available? And now we have that level of understanding. How is that changing how antibodies are patented? Quite a bit, actually, it, it turns out. Recently, there was a, a court case. Two very prominent ma- manufacturers of antibody drugs were in a dispute because they both had antibodies targeting the same, the same protein to lower cholesterol. And the court decided that it was no longer to, sufficient to get an antibody patent to just say, you know, I've got this suite of antibodies. It targets this protein. You need to, you need to give us a little bit more information, in fact, a lot more information about what, the, what these antibodies or what this antibody is doing and how it's working to achieve this effect. And so the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has recently released new guidelines that are setting the bar much, much higher to get a patent for an antibody. They're asking for detailed information about how your antibody or antibodies work before they give you patent protection. And this isn't just changing things going forward. It, it's actually retroactive. Yeah, it, it applies retro, retroactively. So these are very valuable drugs, not only for drug companies, but for the universities whose scientists make the discoveries that often underpin a lot of these antibody drugs. So yeah, this is, I think a lot of people are trying to figure out you know, which way to go with these new patent rules. Now, it must be probably quite frustrating for quite a number of biotech companies, but for some it's quite good news. Yeah, well, I guess I guess the patent lawyers are are getting a lot more work thrown their way. And then these the companies uh, that do screening of, of antibodies, you know, they provide you this information to help you get your patent or just to let you know about how your antibody is working. They're seeing they're seeing a lot more business as well. So, you know, it's glass half full, glass half empty kind of situation. <laughs> I don't know, science wins, right? Well, it's always good to know that science wins and perhaps science is winning in this second story as well. Uh, which features a new kind of greener fossil fuel burning power plant. Now, before we get to what makes this greener and how it works, how does a conventional power plant work? A conventional fossil fuel power plant works by taking a fossil fuel, coal is a popular one, I hear, burning it uh, and using the energy created by burning that fossil fuel to turn water into steam. The steam then drives a turbine, which produces electricity. Uh, The downside is that in burning and extracting energy from your fossil fuel, you're releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and that's a greenhouse warming gas. And whose levels have been rising precipitously. So the goal, I think, you know, the goal really is to put out less CO2 while generating energy. And in contrast, how does this power plant work? What's it burning and how is it producing things differently? So instead of using steam to drive this turbine to make electricity, it uses heated carbon dioxide. You know, you still get the electricity production but it makes it much easier to capture the excess carbon dioxide that you're producing from combusting uh, the, the fossil fuel. And so, you know, a lot of people are, are really interested in what's called carbon capture and storage, a way to make fossil fuel power plants a little, a little bit greener. And this is a, a new design for one. So you, you've got a much easier way of capturing that carbon dioxide. Is the aim for a power plant like this that it would cut down the amount of carbon dioxide being pumped into the atmosphere by a substantial fraction? I think they're they're claiming it's a zero emissions power plant. So at least in the burning of fossil fuels, you know, they're they're claiming that they're putting no CO two in the atmosphere. Of course a lot of other things in the running of a power plant produce CO2, um, bringing your fossil fuel to the power plant. But yeah, they're, they're claiming this is zero emission. So it will be worth following to see if that actually pans out. 
Now, I know, though, that typically carbon capture and storage is somewhat inefficient and expensive, but that's different in this case, right? As I understand it, a lot of the expense from, from carbon capture and storage comes to the fact that you have to retrofit an existing power plant to enable these capacities, whereas this new power plant design, it's all built from the ground up to capture that carbon dioxide. So its developers, the people who have designed this, they see it as being competitive, uh, price, price competitive with, uh, with other fossil fuel power plants. And what will they actually do with this CO2 once it's captured? I think they're looking for people to buy it. Basically, um, you know, there are a number of uh, chemical and manufacturing processes that could use uh, concentrated CO2. So I think they're hoping to find out those markets. They're currently testing this plant. What are the what are the next steps? I think the next steps are to prove that it's as good uh, in reality as, as as they say, as it is on paper. So to, you know, put it in the real world and see if it can generate energy at a reasonable basis without pumping as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Thank you, Ewan, for joining us. For more on all the latest science news, head on over to nature.com forward slash news. That's all we've got time for this week, but make sure to follow us on Twitter at Nature Podcast or for my personal stream of consciousness at Espundel. And you can find me at Climate Adam. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.